Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Who cares about a Bunsen burner? No one. Well, actually, burning the aluminium strips is quite fun. Hello, it's Will Young here from the Wellbeing Lab. When I bought my house, was I so aware that it was on a flight path? No, maybe it was a quiet day. But my gosh, those planes come early. Anyway, I can't complain. And why would I complain? We've got a great episode. Dissociative Disorders and Equine Therapy. Would you put the two together? I would. Again, two that I have experienced. We talk, first of all, to Emma Jack. She's Deputy CEO and Deputy Clinical Director at CDS UK, which is the Clinic for Dissociative Studies. I started by asking Emma what drew her to working with dissociative disorders. There's always a patient, I think, that uh, switches things. But but I guess I was always working a little bit in this this area. I used to work for a personality disorder clinic in Bexley Heath. And there, when you're working in personality disorder, you are seeing a lot of trauma, you know, people with a, a high degree of childhood trauma. And following that, I worked for the London Ambulance Service, so working with paramedics. And frequently you'd see people in states of PTSD, something like that. So I just I just kept moving more and more towards, you know, the most dark and the most difficult. And then I got a patient who I, honest to God, didn't really understand. When I first met her, I didn't really understand her. But as her sort of internal world unfolded, I sort of just followed my nose and I thought, actually, I do understand this. And uh, she had quite a big multiple personality system. She has. It's um, because when I got dissociation um, would be about nine years ago, it suddenly it happened. So I was, you know, really in the middle of an emotional breakdown breakthrough, whatever you want to call it. And then suddenly one day I was having lunch with my old manager, someone I'd known for years, you know, no as me, the dogs. This is what happens, the dogs. Let me just let them out. Go on. Um, I'd, um, and I knew her, but I didn't know her and it was so strange. And I knew the place that I was in, but I didn't know the place. And it took me to identify it and, well, I suppose, diagnose it myself by going on the internet. Um, that's my kind of journey with it. Could I ask you to take me through the, well, what is dissociation and what are the dissociative disorders? So dissociation 
It's a collection of symptoms, really. There are five sort of symptom clusters, but they can merge and overlap a little bit. So you might be familiar with some of them. So the first is amnesia, which is uh, essentially missing uh, memories. And that amnesia can be for day-to-day experiences or for long periods of your life. Derealization, the loss of being in touch with what's around you, the loss of the world around you. Depersonalization, loss of yourself or sense of, that you don't know who you are. Or, or that can be even just partial, like uh, feeling that your arms aren't where you think they are or you can't feel the lower half of your body. You know, So it can be bits and bobs of all of those things. Uh, identity confusion and identity alteration. Those last two only occur in DID, dissociative identity disorder, really. But the other three can appear in combinations and different amounts and different severity. Yeah, yeah, because I had depersonalization and derealization. Uh, I didn't re- couldn't really connect with anything. Felt like I was in a movie. And then the derealization side of things was that I sort of was wondering whether the whole world was real. And I'd sort of be yes. watching people and think, oh, are they all sort of almost taking part in a movie? And, you know, not to underplay how terrifying it was for me. I mean, yeah. absolutely terrifying. And, the, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you about it, because people couldn't really understand it. Um, you know, they thought that it was anxiety or depression. It was very hard for people to sort of understand it. I think it can come along with anxiety, depression and stress. And if you've got all three of those going on at the same time, you can derealize and depersonalize. But I suppose I think the thing to remember and what makes it different from other mental health conditions. So, you know, it's a disorder, derealization, depersonalization disorder, or, and, you know, they're all disorders. But those things in their simple form are defenses. So the defense is against something else. And they're the most ingenious. And when they combine, and when they combine to the point that it's dissociative identity disorder, it's the most ingenious way of not being present for something terrible. So it's the ultimate defensive mechanism almost. Jump out of one's body, jump out of one's reality. Exactly. So for me, dissociation, I couldn't work out at the time, I don't feel it matters now, if it was a symptom or its own thing. You know, was it a symptom of my PTSD or was it its own category of mental health difficulty? Well, it's interesting because I would say, so the two types, so the simple dissociation, which is what you're talking about, I think, but I don't know, and then the structural dissociation. That is, that dissociation is an absolute key part of your, the formation of your personality. Whereas later dissociation, the type you're talking about, derealization, depersonalization in the way that you are, is more of a kind of, I can imagine that you probably felt quite fragmented inside. So mm. it's got a sort of fragmentation feel, but you're not entirely separate. So it's, not a, it's an overlay, if you like. Uh, to cope with a difficult experience, so maybe a difficult childhood experience. And structural dissociation, I remember hearing you say from our conversation at the beginning of the week, is is something that very much comes from very early childhood trauma and, and 
Am I right in saying abuse? Yes. Yeah. yeah the commonly. first three years, is it? The first... Yes, I would say to, to structurally dissociate, to have that as a key part of your personality is going to be under three. There may be people who disagree with me. How does one treat, first of all, starting the sort of the, the simple dissociation like derealization, depersonalization? How? Well, I think if you consider it as a defence, then I think you're always trying to settle it somewhat and then work out what's behind it. So it's still the same kind of process. You know, at the clinic, we follow the ISSTD. That's the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. We follow their guidelines. So their guidelines would say it's a three-phased approach, that you're, first of all, trying to create uh, stability. Then you're in a period of exploration and, and I think that includes mourning, so exploring the trauma and mourning. And then you're in a kind of, of period of integration, which is coming to terms with your new reality and your new self, as it were. I think for me, the things that have worked, um, I would notice that if I had a therapy session, if someone was there, then my nervous system would settle for about an hour. Uh, and I've heard that from a lot of people with dissociation and then it would come back. So it was sort of, in a way, it was so awful because when it went, it was so wonderful, but I knew it would come back. And I'm sure you hear that a lot. And, it, you know, that was really difficult. And I would say I felt that across the board with a lot of therapists, that something, a part of me would feel safe and seen. Um, I also think just the body-based approach. So any anything that would calm my nervous system down, yeah. Well, if you think of a sort of baby crying, you know, the thing that you would do with a baby crying is pick it up, hold it close to yourself. If you remain calm when you're holding the baby and you pat I mean, I do this with adult clients, actually. I use a heartbeat pat somewhere in their body, and that can be really calming. And, and I think that's right. I don't believe that you can leave the body out of it. No. But that's a controversial in therapy thought. You know, cause Is you're it not really? Talk, well, I mean, therapy is a talking cure, primarily. And that's so interesting, because I think of books like The Body Keeps the Score, and I suppose if we're really focusing in on trauma and people like Peter Levine that have written about mm -hmm. how you treat trauma somatically... For me, certainly, it would be the two approaches, the mind and very much the body, because my dissociation felt so, well, it was so body-oriented. Body, yeah. yeah, you know. And how about with the, the stronger dissociative disorders? How do you treat those? Well, I think the same, although whenever you're treating trauma, trauma victims and victims of abuse, you've got to be very careful. Some uh, can be triggered by being touched, of course, but you can still be aware of the body and, uh, you know, mindful of the body. But I think you have to find the right way for each patient and find exactly what works for them, because for some people, it's actually other things more like music or... Smells is a big one for me. Yeah. Smells sort of bring me back in the room. When I was in treatment, I know that you know, we had always had smells around if someone was you know, zoning out or really getting triggered to a point of yeah. emo emotional hijacking. You know. um, yeah, yeah. When you're treating people that have 
multiple identities. How do you approach that? Do you want to get rid of those identities? or No, not at all. And I think that's what a lot of multiple systems are frightened of, that therapists are there to get rid of them. No, I think you meet each identity on its own terms and learn about it. And, and you know, they can all be very different and have very different problems, if you like. And they're within one body, both men, women, babies, toddlers, children, teens, boys, girls. So you have to keep relating, yet you're only ever seeing the one adult body. If I could ask you for a definition of multiple identities. It's the fragmentation of a person into more than one identity caused by extreme abuse, usually at least partially at the hands of caregivers. In other words, their only way of surviving or coping with what they've had to endure is to have more than one person and split the trauma across. You typically have ANPs, apparently normal personalities, that live day-to-day life, have a job, and they appear entirely normal. Behind that, you would have EPs, emotional parts. They can be all kinds of things. I don't really like the split EPANP, actually, but that's the language we use. I I treat them all as equal, even if uh, their role in the system is just to drive the car. So they can be very partial like that. Or they can be four personalities who speak French and play the piano. The front person, the person that most people see, might know nothing about this, nothing at all. Oh, so that's fascinating. So how do they not get diagnosed schizophrenic? Well, frequently they are diagnosed schizophrenic. It is qualitatively quite different, though. And I do think, you know, this is one of the issues for dissociative patients, that people aren't regularly screening for those kinds of symptoms, even in yourself. You know, nobody thought to do uh, DES. A DES is a relatively simple, it's the dissociative experiences scale. And it'll ask you questions like, some people have the experience of driving or riding in a car or bus and suddenly realising that they don't remember what's happened during part of the trip. You know, that's an easy question. Further down, there's 28 questions. Some people have the experience of finding new things amongst their belongings that they don't remember buying. So now you're starting to get into a kind of DID sort of dissociation. No memory for important events in your life, that sort of thing. Mm. That's a 28-question thing. You could screen people with that. And Why is it not done more, do you think? You know, I think there's a deep resistance to the idea of dissociation. I think people are very frightened of it, and especially at the DID end. The idea that you're not singularly yourself or that your reality doesn't remain the same at all times, that you don't have a continuous narrative of your life is so fundamentally frightening. And the reasons why people are dissociated are so frightening, mm. you know. That's very, that's very interesting. Shame can create dissociation as well. Yeah, because I think if when we're little, our needs aren't met, we can cut off from our needs and not want to have them because they're so shameful. But of course, we still have them. It's a sort of relational shame I'm talking about. So when you get back in touch with that, you have to get back in touch with all of the shame as well and the grief at not having your needs met. If people are listening and perhaps they might not have even identified how they dissociate or they've never heard it before, what what would you say 
how to guide them to get to get help? I suppose the first thing is to notice that you dissociate. So I suppose I think you often notice, well, in your case, you did notice just you were sitting with someone and you thought cognitively, I should recognise this person, but I don't. And that switched you on to it. And I guess then becoming interested in that in a compassionate way, which is the difficult thing, you know, as opposed to sort of saying, for God's sake, you know, stop it, stop it. But rather than that, be curious about it and say, why is what is that? Why is that happening? And, you know, have a sort of sense that if it's happening, it means something. This is your body trying to tell you something. And that there's something behind that that you need to know. So while, while you might be overwhelmed by the symptoms, you also want to know, why is this happening to me? And be kind to yourself, whether this is memory gaps. I mean, for DID patients, often they find themselves places in clothes or doing things that they don't know why. And then they realise they've got massive gaps in their memory. They don't know why. And so I think that is quite frightening. I suppose being inventive, maybe even playful about ways to find what works. Well, I mean, I think that's the truth. Just before I met with you, I was with a patient for a couple of hours. That's the other thing. You have to have double sessions if you've got DID because there are so many people you can't fit it into one session. But uh, I was working with, let's say the patient is a woman in her middle age, but the, the ultra I was working with is a teenage boy. And he likes to have a Nerf gun battle with me at the beginning of every therapy session. So he sets up cans around my office and we see who can get all the cans down, you know, in the least number of bullets. And for him, that's a very connecting because he can feel that I really enjoy that. Like that's that's a good thing for me to be. I'm not pretending to play Nerf gun. I am playing Nerf gun. And I think that's that's a very important point with these patients to be authentic not some kind of TV therapist, mm, mm. be a real person with them, accepting them as a 13-year-old boy, even though the person that's in front of you is a 47-year-old woman. I completely believe in him as a 13-year-old boy, yeah. and I'm happy to play with him in that way. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Um, it's and a we pleasure. Will speak again. Yes. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Very interesting dissociative disorders of a very un- unexplored area, I would say, or maybe unspoken about. I certainly found that in my experience. Now, we're going to Dr. Andreas Liefuga now. He's just the most amazing guy. Um, he's a psychologist and psychotherapist and lifelong horseman who runs Operation Centaur in Richmond Park. He's so cool. We talk about the benefits of equine therapy, what people get from equine therapy, they can't always get from other therapies, but go to see him in Richmond Park. But he told me about his route into equine therapy. I've always been around horses from a very young age. Um, horses have always been sort of there for me in some ways, and I think the um, I used to compete, I used to do show jumping, I used to do all kinds of, all kinds of things with, with horses. But I also I think found out quite, quite early on that there was a sort of emotional solace with, with horses as well, and even though I didn't have the language at that time. So my parents divorced when I was quite young, and I would find myself going sort of being drawn and just kind of sitting in stables and being around horses and feeling that I belonged somehow that I was accepted and all the kind of things that then later when I started sort of <clears throat> formalizing the, the the therapy kind of thinking it's kind of uncanny how how that sort of that, that that's always been there for me in some ways because so tell me about that because that's you know, whether someone comes in here with you know three four diagnoses with various kind of experiences, horses will only really react to the energy that's in front of them. And they don't judge. They don't, you know, people kind of have lots of questions. They go, does this horse like me? Does the horse not like me? Does it hate me? Does it not hate me? And, and my sort of response is, is that we don't know whether horses like or whether horses hate or whether they have these kind of emotions. We don't, you know, these are very much our sort of ways of, 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 of portraying the world. Yes. But what we can see is that there is that there is a connection going on. So let's look at that connection. How, how is that established? And then we start seeing that, of course, horses, you know, we are the ones who have to find the connection with the horse. The horse has a connection with us straight away. It's their survival, isn't it? Kind of the, yeah. If you're a horse, you have to connect with what's going on around you because you might get killed. And so, is that because they're a, a prey animal? Hmm. And so let's talk about their sort of neurology or that or their... Neurology might be the, the wrong word, but does horses being a prey animal, is that the starting point for horse therapy? It... It's one of the fundamental touch points, I think, because horses have to manage anxiety, to just put a human term on, a, on, yeah, on, on yeah. whatever horses are experiencing. Um, and therefore it's already quite useful for, because a lot of people who, who come to us is because they are stuck in some kind of anxiety and, and don't quite know where to, to move next. So to, to meet horses is, is meeting an animal that will have to regulate its emotions a lot because horses can get very scared very, very quickly. So, for example, people say horses are scared of umbrellas. Horses are not scared of umbrellas because if you had a thousand umbrellas there, the horse wouldn't bat an eyelid, it just walk past it. But have one umbrella sticking out in Richmond Park that's going yeah. to be the scariest thing that's unusual. going to happen because it's the, it's the unusual, it's the uncanny, it's something's not quite in the right place. And, you know, we can't quite put our finger on what it is, 
So you yeah. see, my the moment I start talking about it, well, and yeah. we are the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, yeah. sort of a, we kind of know that something's awry, but we don't quite feel what or how, and we can't quite put a finger on it, but we just know it's not quite right. Yes. And connecting at that level, to me, is so much more powerful to kind of having someone say to you, ah, you have this symptom, you have that symptom, you have that symptom, therefore you must be X or you must be Y. Mm. And we sort of ignore really all of that, to be honest. We just kind of look at how can we relate. So the first thing that we look at really is connection. How do we connect with this, with this horse? We then go away. How do we reconnect? Because really what you, what you see, you know, having horses here in, in therapy is that people connect with the horse but in doing so, they actually reconnect with a sort of disavowed part of themselves a lot. Yes, go on, yes, talk more about and that. that. That's really... is, I think that's when it becomes far more interesting. So we've taken horses into prisons, for example, and there's this amazing moment where one of the prisoners is sort of just stroking the horse and telling this incredible story of their childhood and how they've, what they've experienced and how lovely it was with the family going out and there were horses involved and all of that. And all of a sudden, in this very grim and very dark world, hope manifested it itself. So it was something that we could work with. So not denying the reality that it's grim being in prison and, and staying there, but yet also acknowledging that there are other registers as well so that yeah. we can kind of connect to it. So that little interaction with the horse reconnected into something that had been disavowed for a very long time. And that I was see. quite powerful. Oh, so like a forgotten, yes. Mm. A forgo- do they regulate us? Can That's they? a good question. I think they probably do. I mean, we don't, we don't know a huge amount about that. But for example, I know that if I get really stressed out about something or I'm upset about something, I spend some time with horses, my heart rate does go down and I feel a lot more calm. So I think, and you know, some horses do that, others don't. Um, there's lots of variability in horses as well. Really? Do you use different types of horses for different... Yeah, things totally. so please say Shetlands <laughs> they just seem so naughty we don't have <laughs> I used to have a Shetland. Shetlands uh, Shire horses we have and we, oh. work, we work with Shire horses so for example we do a lot of anti-bullying interventions for, for schools and with I, horses yeah and I almost always use the Shire horses for that because you just cannot bully a Shire horse right? so you <laughs> they're the really a, big ones aren't they're they they're a ton they weigh yeah. a ton yeah. they are work horses they're the lorries of their day you sort of pull they, the plows you just kind of yeah you yeah. kind of thinking okay I don't really care who you are <laughs> you're not going to bully this horse you're not going to make this horse do, do anything it doesn't want to do so um, when you bring that horse with a with school come out here to you or Hampton Court or will you bring a horse to the school? Oh, we've, we've worked um, in cooperation with the Royal Park, so we, we, we go to the barracks in Hyde Park, so we took the Shire horses in, the, in Knightsbridge in the barracks and used the sand school there with, with some of the inner city schools. And um, the kids will come out and what will they sort of, this is so fascinating, what will they learn from so, seeing the, the Shire horse? So in that project it was very much about how can we in a very hands-on, non-lecturing way show that cooperation is actually more valuable than conflict. And that's sort of what we, we have five sessions and we, and we kind of do that. And it's sort of, you know, we've worked on this quite a lot over, over the years. 
and it can almost work, but you know, it's like clockwork. It's sort of you know, you, you kind of get the first of all, they kind of um, there's a lot of aggression that comes out, and there's a lot of conflict that arises. But bit by bit, there is a sense that actually they start. So a lot of it is projected onto me, of, of course, because I'm the sort of I'm, I'm the personal authority. Yeah. I'm the one who's telling them what the, what has to happen. But then I'm also the person who can work and get these horses to to cooperate with me without having to touch them without having to to use any implements they can say where's the whip where's the stick i think no we don't really need all of that so it's just really about do i want to connect with this horse and how how can we do that so after a while you start seeing people start peeling off and they start thinking you know i don't particularly like this guy yeah but i want to figure out how he does that because I really want to be able to kind of do that yeah. bit by bit rather than kind of saying rather than sort of focusing on the negative behaviors which we never do we just kind of look at positive behaviors we'll build on that and at the end of the session you know that group can take shy horse can get it to do whatever they they, they want to do with it so there's a huge amount of, of, of achievement and and just that sense that actually they managed to do that and they managed to do it working together as a group taking advice, um, being led yes. into, into doing that Seeing a result. is a very unique experience for, for a lot of these kids. Can you give me examples of what equine therapy can be really beneficial for? I suppose perhaps certain diagnosis, and I you know, use it in inverted commas because I've, I've had numerous diagnoses yeah. over the years, which mean nothing to me. But yeah, what kind of situations do people come in and or diagnosis that they come with that horse therapy can be very useful for so we we do a lot of work with addiction and i think uh, it particularly i think it works very well with that group because it's all about walking the walk rather than talking the talk and one of the key things i think that particularly in, in, in groups of recovery is about asking for help um, when we start doing tasks and uh, how people try and do certain things and will not ask for help till finally they'll kind of think actually if I don't allow someone else in this is never going to going to work yeah. and that's I think that's a, a very powerful point in addiction program we work a, a lot with people who diagnose with an eating disorder and what kind of things will they get from being with the horses is it about the connection a thing that comes up time and again is and this sounds quite odd but people feel listened to by horses mm. um, in a very very powerful way uh, people feel they're not being judged people feel they can be themselves poignant sort of things that you ex- that you might expect they actually would encounter in a in a consulting room somewhere but clearly people don't if you're actually not that comfortable talking you know, language is, is the thing we have that allows what's inside of us mm. outside, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's going to be, without language, mm-hmm. no therapist can do their job. So horses are very effective communicators. They don't speak English, they don't speak French, they, don't speak, they speak horse. And if we can get people to just kind of get in that kind of communication, have some experiences with the horses... When they come back, they can't stop talking about it. Mm. And then we're, we're in. We have, we have this hook in. Then people kind of say, and this happened. And then I felt this when, when, when that horse... Did, and we're kind of going, interesting, tell me more. Yeah. How that, and, and then bit by bit. And, and all of a sudden, by decentering the therapist yes. and decentering language and yes. putting the horse in the centre, yes. 
you create a very, very different dynamic and a very different experience for, for people. But it means that I can be the observer in my own sort of therapy session. Yes, yes, yes. Which gives me a very different vantage point. It's almost like the horse is some sort of prism in a way. We get so complicated as humans, but animals really are quite simple. It feels like the horses offer this kind of like grounding, calming prism. I like prism, by the way. We, we, tend, to, we, we tend to say mirror, but I think prism is, is very nice, actually. I think with horses, there is a sort of... Horses don't lie. No. You know, there's, there's, there's sort of, it, it is what it is. You know, they, they, they kind of read you. You can't pretend. If you, if you were to be really anxious and you kind of think, okay, I'm going to get in a role and I'm going to pretend I'm going to be really confident and go towards that horse, they, they'll just see an anxious person yeah. come towards them. They're not, they can't see that sort of double bluff that, that comes, yeah. comes, comes into it. Um, Do you have particular horses that, so for example, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of body work. I'm really hit a sort of interesting place of sadness in my body. Mm. So if I come to you and say that, would you think, oh, yeah, we'll bring out Pete the Clydesdale for this one? We do. There are certain horses, for example, that can cope with a lot of trauma um, and that can contain and can hold a, a lot more. There are other horses that are very sensitive and that, you know, we, we have horses that have trauma in their past as yes. well. And we're very careful how, how we, we kind of invite them into the, into the sessions and how, how we work. Um, it's not a neutral experience for the horse coming into, into a therapy session. Mm. You know, we have mm. to be careful that they don't burn out yes. either and, and they have enough time out and, 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 and all of that. How do people access equine therapy and how do they come to find you? There's a whole range of, of ways to, to access us from, on the one hand, NHS referrals. We work with um, a lot of the private hospitals as well who refer, people self-refer as well. And we also tend to run sort of open groups as well from, from time to time. You know, working with horses in London involving multiple therapists is always going to be quite expensive. So we're trying very hard to kind of find out how we can sort of democratise access to that. So we have an open group that runs, um, which, is, which is low cost. We try to work with the whole full range of people. Right, so then we go outside to the stables. Dr Andres introduced me to the horse that we'd be working with. This is the boy we're going to do some work with today he's you normally we don't disclose the names of, of horses because if I say to people oh this horse is called George and then their dad's called George and immediately lots of things get transferred oh, yeah. to that he is called Mr Monochrome however so I don't think anybody's got any sort of relatives that yeah. are called Mr Monochrome he's very he's, beautiful so how tall is he he's 16.3 he's a thoroughbred he raced really? and um, when he came to us he was quite uh, he was quite traumatised, and uh, it took us quite a long time to kind of, uh, like for example, if I were to kind of put my, my hand up like this, he'd go and cower in a little corner somewhere. So how old is he? He's nine. So he seems very calm. Yeah, he's sort of, he knows what we're doing. Now this looks like it's, what do you call this, the sand? This is a manège. This so is a manège, is that a French word? It is. So now you've unclipped his, and taken his, is that a bridle? Yeah, head collar. Head collar. So if we move away from him now and just let him... Oh, look, do you hear that little... Actually, what we haven't talked about is, is safety. So every session, of course, starts with safety. Yes. 
it's sort of quite interesting how what shape that takes in equine assisted psychotherapy because usually people think about safety as a sort of that boring sort of thing that you have to you know health and safety yes. briefing or whatever but here it's very much about being accountable because I, I basically tell people you know they're flight animals this horse weighs about 700 kg mm. um, he can go to, you know from naught to 40 in a very very short time oh God, yeah. um, powerful the amount of power one of the key things that we can learn from horses is that they know how to look after themselves. If they think they're getting in a sticky situation, they'll remove themselves so fast from this. It won't matter if you stand in their way or not. So what it does, it, it situates people very much into being accountable, into being responsible for their own safety. And I think it's quite rare today how infrequent that actually oh, so happens that's interesting. because yes. I think we constantly think that somebody else is, is, is in charge somehow over our safety and our well-being someone's checked something and done the work around it and here it's like bang no you're so yes. what are you going to do about it and people can go oh I say well you don't have to come in so you know you can choose not to come in yes or you can choose to jump the fence or you can choose to climb a tree or you can come and stand behind me but you yes. can do whatever but you have to do something because I can't read your I can't read horses minds I can't read your minds you need to act and I think that impetus to act and be accountable well that brings us almost a sense of empowerment mm. no <gasps> hang on what's going on so he's now he's having he's lying down so he was wandering around and he was having a little scratch in various places and now he's <laughs> now he's rolling on his back this is adorable. So that's Why is he a, doing that? That's a relaxed horse, really. You know, um, flight animal needs their legs to run away if there's danger. So if he perceived us to be dangerous in any kind of way, he would never have lied down like that and, and rolled. He's just settled now. But it's interesting because if I was having a day of feeling more needy or more insecure, I could certainly see that I might be thinking, oh, but, you know, the horse, I want the horse to come up to me. Mm. And why Lots isn't the horse liking me? And you yeah. know and then we'll, we'll unpack that yeah, yeah we'll so of, that's we'll interesting that so thinking oh, what are you bringing today that, yes that, that's that going on that you're not right now and what might we do about it yes you know so for example if if that's how you feel i would say come on let's let's Look. let's go and reconnect we're going to reconnect and, uh, let's go yes i move to the horse so you see in this way as well is that i don't really do that much talk i just kind of no. you know if someone says i feel really lonely standing here going let's move if you know let's not be lonely if, yes uh, if, if that's what you want let's go and do it and people thinking gosh is it that simple so we're and walking sort of towards him now and he's and now he's moving and he's moving to us. our left isn't he but he's not he's stopped now we're probably about eight feet from him yeah. now is going over with He's gone over to him and he's just directed him sort of slightly towards us now. Feels like you slightly brought him into us a bit more in a way. That was like a reassuring he thing was, for yeah. him. They're like, um, you know, horses like all of us, really. They're just like a bit of reassurance from time to time. And it yeah. doesn't have to be a huge demonstration of affection or whatever. It's just a kind of, no, you're all right, mate. Don't worry about it. We're all here. Nothing's going to happen. And people say, like, with their ears. So if the ears go back, does that mean that people say, with the ears go back, that means they're angry? So ears are fascinating with horses because ears, that's language in horses. It's, kind of, it's not quite as simple as saying move back and they're going to kick you. No. 
But if they pin right back, then it's like, yeah, he's going to kick or he's going to do he's something crossed. around it. Yeah. But the really, really interesting thing is, so we, we did a lot of, of, of work with kids diagnosed on the spectrum. And our approach is very much in trying to reject the sort of deficit model. And so I think rather than get these kids to communicate with us in the way we want to communicate, let's kind of see whether there's any other ways around that. So we bring the carers and the parents in. And one of the, the main things that we found, which I, th- I think was amazing, is... Uh, how kids on the spectrum understand ears they totally get the ears they totally get what's going on for the horse and That's the, amazing. and the parents come in here and they kind of go come on and say hello to the nice horsey and all the rest and the kids going don't go That's anywhere good. near and you kind of thinking know oh, it. yeah he's basically saying back off i don't want to be with you you know i don't trust this I, I need a bit more time i need a bit more space a little boy who was diagnosed on the on the spectrum he was very attached to to football that he brought with him and the care team that was with him stopped him from bringing it in with the horses because the horses would be upset and I was saying, well, how do we know? Well, let's try it. Let's see. Bring the ball in. Horses are absolutely fine. Don't pay, pay, buy a bit of, of, of attention. So you, you see him kind of coming now. He's very curious now, isn't it? Because we oh. are engaged oh, in, in a topic. And now yes. he thinks, I want to be part yes, of this. Yes, he's come yeah, right he's in right now. right here now. Oh, my wow, that's just amazing. I'm looking right at that beautiful face. Do you want this? And he's having a little sniff of the microphone. And now he's trying to eat it. <laughs> now he's gone back up. He's not sure. But he's very sweet. Oh, he's isn't she? so sweet. But did you see how it took a while and then we yes. were all connected? Yes. Because we were, you know, I was kind of, yes. I brought a story in that thinking, oh, this is, it. so yes. everybody's listening to the story. We're all connecting. That's how herds connect and that feels safe. And yes. he wants to be with that safe little yes. herd. You know, we're not doing our own thing in our head because, you know, half the time when you talk to someone, you're thinking what you're going to respond. You're not really in the moment. Yes. This was a nice example i think of us all being in the moment listening to the story being told and bang the horse wants to come and join us anyway anyway sorry no, i interrupted very, that no, no, but that's fascinating but he's look now he's giving me a little nudge and that's cashmere by the way i just want to let you know that yeah so boundaries boundaries Will, yeah. so what do i do you need to stop him do i just from, push yeah, him away just kind of say no this is enough no this is enough so let, let me let me finish the story yes, sorry, of, the, yes. of the boy he kicks the football towards me and I'm thinking, I'll just, I'll just stand there because that's what I would do in therapy. Necessary, I don't necessarily, you know, play the game that no. people bring. So this little boy comes to me, and takes my foot, and puts my foot because he probably thinks I'm the most stupid person in the world who doesn't know how a, how a game of, of football works. <laughs> yeah. Now to me, that was like one of the most amazing experiences ever in therapy because this boy wasn't using language, he'd never spoken, and there is that sense that kids on the spectrum don't have that theory of mind they can't take perspective but clearly he must have known incredibly well what was going on in my mind yes. to know that I didn't understand what it was and he managed in a very very effective way to communicate what yes. he wanted and what he wanted to achieve and had I just done that we would never have kind of got to yes, that yes because you wouldn't but have allowed him to to even explain see. something yeah. so I'm not even allowing him to communicate yeah, right? yeah, 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 if, yeah, yeah. If, I, if I do that so now by opening it up and just by being patient and looking into it I'm actually giving an opportunity to say even though this is a disorder that's seen as a communicative disorder or lacking in, in the ability yeah. of being able to communicate, now all of a sudden you demonstrate that if I take a slightly decentered perspective on yes. this, a whole different way of communicating arises. It's, and that's what happens with horses. Yeah, I love that. It's amazing. It's like by using the horse as this sort of central entity within the whole session, it's almost like you're actually putting more focus on the client yes. in, a, in a true way. Very much so. Oh, 
Thank you very, very much. That has been fascinating. Um, I've learned so much. Super. Thank you very much for joining us. I really found that fascinating. And actually, I'd like to go back there for myself. Um, I think he's got a very cool thing there. I love what he does with schools. And I think it's a, a very gentle and powerful form of therapy. You've been in touch. I like it when you're in touch and you tell me things. This message has come in from uh, someone via email. Hello, Will. I've been following The Happy Place for ages. Now that's Fern Cotton's podcast. And after hearing you on there, I had to binge listen to your Wellbeing Lab podcast to get me up to speed. Wow, they're amazing. Your voice is so soothing. We get a lot of that. And your podcasts are really interesting. I've struggled on and off with mental health over the years and regularly see my Reiki lady for sessions and chats. Well, Reiki is going to be something we're we're going to cover. We delved quite deep last week because I've been having some dark thoughts. Uh, a lot stems from growing up gay and having to deal with it at a young age. My earliest memories are of finding dad's pornography and lingering longer on naked guys than women. It wasn't until I was 16 when I came out to me and then 18 to everyone else. Mum flipped. Dad shook my hand but blamed himself as he felt he'd not been there enough for me textbook answer he says um so as i've gotten older i'm 55 now i've gone to my childhood with tess who i see for reiki we've identified it's been all about acceptance and she's established i need to be kinder to my younger self if that makes sense it does indeed regular exercise reading loads listening to music and podcasts has helped by the way your last book helped too thank you that was a book on gay shame um such a good read maybe a future podcast about how we deal with coming out so young and having it impact on us later. No, I think actually that would be good um, to do. So I really appreciate that. Um, huge thanks. And I wait for bated breath for the next one. Well, I'm pleased that you brought up Reiki because we're definitely going to be covering that. And it's always nice to hear. And thanks for sharing your story. I, you know, I really appreciate it. Sounds like you're doing some really good work as well. Someone else has been in touch. Hi, Will. Mental health is so fragile. As a nurse and talking with people daily, mental health encompasses almost every conversation at the moment. I've really enjoyed your wellbeing podcast so far, and I'm starting number three tonight. I am nose-breathing as I type. And when I go running tonight, even though I may collapse, well, please don't, I will try nose-breathing then as well. <laughs> Wish me luck. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. Someone else via Instagram. Thank you for the shopping addiction episode. I saw so much of myself in it and how I use shopping and dissociation to deal with uncomfortable feelings and to soothe my anxiety. Uh, lots of work for me to do, but thank you for putting it out there. Looking forward to more episodes. Well, thank you for being in touch and well done for doing the work because it's not easy and you will get more content, I think. Hi, Will. Just wanted to say thank you for starting this podcast. It's been so informative for me who has anxiety and depression. I never even realised about boundaries. I know, aren't boundaries amazing? So it makes so much sense. Oh, good, I'm pleased. I'm, I'm a huge fan of boundaries and I, they've really changed my life. And another email in. Hi, Will, I've loved listening to your podcast. They're insightful, meaningful and authentic. I'm someone who has had anxiety in varying levels from a slight daily hum to a debilitating pounding around the room. Tired but wired anxiety. Oh, I know that one. I've read so many books and have a good grip on what my thoughts are, which helps, but there's no magic switch. It's a daily routine of doing the things that keep it within a manageable level. I find listening to podcasts, watching therapy videos, breathing and tapping helps along with talking. Unfortunately, my dear friend committed suicide 18 months ago 
only 58 and it was unexpected. She had anxiety and depression herself and was a good support. I'm sorry to hear that. But then my beautiful mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer last July and she died in December, so my other rock in my life has gone. Grief is so emotional, heartbreaking and all-encompassing. We will be doing something on grief, just to let you know. Daily struggles of feeling lost and not knowing how to deal with these new emotions is tough. I'm sure it is. Uh, two podcasts that have helped is Griefcast, yes, I've heard about that, by Cariad Lloyd and Anxiety Slayer. Oh, could that be a new Marvel character? Welcome the Anxiety Slayer. I'm ready to audition. An idea for a podcast is grief. Oh, well, here we go. You see, you were one step ahead of me. And what emotions that brings, especially anxiety. Once again, thank you for delving into these hard to talk about issues. Thank you very much for sharing your story. And also, um, you know, again, another person suggesting a very good topic, which we are going to cover, actually. So I'm really pleased. It makes me feel that we're on the right track. And also, dear listener, if you hear... Um, from a listener's email or message and, and that moves you, feel free to get in touch or talk about it. So, you know, you can all start helping each other and supporting each other so people don't feel alone. That would be my dream. Um, yeah, that really would be my dream. As ever, if you want to get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at the Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at the Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, it's OCD and sound therapy. OCD, many people come up to me, talk about OCD. Uh, and sound therapy, we speak to a sound therapist and also I went and experienced it, which I shall tell you more on next week. Uh, until then, take care. Lots of love. Bye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true.